And hello there, Peter Mansbridge here. You are just moments away from the latest episode of The Bridge. And today's Bridge is a special edition. We're going on the road with one of Canada's best-known aid workers, Dr. Samantha Nutt of War Child Canada. This is a special edition of The Bridge. Peter Mansbridge here. As I said, today's a special edition uh, of The Bridge on the road with Dr. Sam Nutt of War Child Canada. I'm going to try and break down what actually happens on how these people, and Dr. Nutt is just one of many aid workers in Canada, but she's special to The Bridge. Uh, she's been on the program many times. But we want to try and understand the situation of how you get in a country like South Sudan. How do you actually do it? And we got to start off with, you know, I, I would advise people to <laughs> to have a map. Just Google South Sudan, map South Sudan. Have that handy or map Northeast Africa. Have that handy so we can place where we're going on this little trip. You'll know what we're talking about. I, I remember when I, when I used to be at the National, many of us had the same concern that we would Talk about a place in the world, we'd throw up a map, and it, the map would be a cutout of the particular country. But you'd have, no, you'd have no real sense looking at that map. Okay, like, but where is it? You know, I, I see the shape of that country, but where is that country in relation to the part of the world it's in? And so that's what we want to, true, to do here, first of all, is, you know, where is it? How do you get there? What do you go through getting there? And then when you're there, what happens? So we're going to talk to um, uh, to Samantha about that. Um, in, in a, we're going to break it down into its most simplest form. Uh, why are we doing Sudan? Well, <laughs> we've we've heard over the last couple of years with our focus on Ukraine and Russia and Israel and Hamas, Yemen you name it, that in fact the place in the world where the worst situation is, is in Sudan, in Northeast Africa. But does the world care? Well, we're going to do our part in trying to at least establish what's happening there, where it is, who's involved, why we should care. So I hope you listen through on this because it's, uh, you know, these people like Dr. Nutt are incredible in what they do. So while you're getting your map ready, let me remind you that uh, the question of the week this week is, if you could tell a new immigrant to Canada one thing about Canada, what would that be? We've already got a lot of entries into this since it was announced yesterday. So don't be shy. Send yours in to the Mansbridge Podcast at gmail.com, the Mansbridge Podcast at gmail.com. And most of the entries so far are obeying the uh, the guidelines that we established. Keep it short. Um, include your name and the location you're writing from. The keep it short part is important if we're going to get as many of these in as possible on Thursday uh, during your turn. The, um, uh, the one deemed the best entry will receive a signed copy of, uh, of one of my books. And uh, look forward to sending that out to somebody later this week. So deadline, 6.30 tomorrow night, 
okay? 6.30 Eastern Time, Wednesday. Uh, get your entry in, please. All right, let's, um, let's get around to our conversation now uh, with Dr. Samantha Nutt of War Child Canada. This topic, on the road with Sam to South Sudan. Here we go. So listen, what I've done already is I've asked our audience to have a map in front of them because, you know, most of us don't know these places you go to and we couldn't find them on a map. You know, <laughs> you saw a map of Africa with no names on it and said, point to South Sudan, people go, right, yeah, okay, well, it's somewhere in there. Um, so first of all, uh, how do you get there? Like, uh, like what, what is the route you go to get into somewhere like South Sudan? Well, it's tricky. I mean, first of all, even just getting the visas to be allowed to travel is uh, is, is very, very complicated. You essentially have to, it, for us, we're a registered humanitarian organization, so you have to provide a lot of documentation. You send it down to what is vaguely an embassy in Washington with your passport and a return envelope, and you hope that that's going to get processed at some point. But I will say that uh, leading into the holidays uh, in December, I was a little concerned that I wasn't going to get my passport back in time. It just disappears into an abyss, but I did. And so once you go through that process, then in terms of travel, I went from Toronto to Heathrow and then Heathrow to Addis Ababa in Ethiopia. And keep in mind, there are long layovers in between and lots of uncertainty around flights. And then you go from Addis into Juba, which is the capital of South Sudan. You, and then from is that there, a, is that a flight? Addis to uh, Juba? That's, that's Ethiopian Airlines flies there. Um, and uh, well, it certainly flies there now. That hasn't always been the case. And then from there, you have to again overnight in Juba, and you have to take special United Nations humanitarian flights that effectively only uh, humanitarian organizations and their staff are allowed to take that you then would take the next day or the day after. And that takes you into these very remote locations. And sometimes those planes are reasonably big, 24 seaters, that kind of thing. Plus, and then sometimes I've been on planes that are tiny six seater world food program planes, and you're landing in a in a strip in the middle of the desert where they actually have someone employed to clear the goats off the runway. And sometimes you have to do a few passes to make sure that there's nothing in your way before you land, which was certainly the experience in places like Somalia. So getting around internally when roads are insecure and or just non-existent with giant holes in the middle of them and that kind of thing, the only way you can really travel is by flying. And the only way you can fly is on these specialty uh, humanitarian flights. Okay, let me back you up just a sec. You, you, you're in Addis, you've flown into Addis from London. Um, and is there any issue about flying from Addis to Juba? Like, do you have to have special, do you have to show your visa? Do you, are, are there border checks or what's involved in that? All of that. So you have to make sure before you're even allowed on the plane that you can demonstrate that you have your visa for South Sudan. Um, sometimes if you're stopping in Ethiopia, you need a visa for Ethiopia as well. And then, of course, keep in mind, Peter, when you land in places like South Sudan at the airport, 
you don't know what you're going to get. You have to have not just your visa, you have to have letters of invitation that have been approved by different members of different governmental departments. You have to have your humanitarian registration. You have to have your identification card. So there's, on top of your actual visa, there are probably half a dozen to a dozen pieces of paper that you have to produce every time you fly, including permissions from the United Nations uh, flight operators and all this kind of stuff. And if any one of those pieces of paper has something that even looks remotely like what it's not supposed to be, an incomplete stamp or an incomplete signature or anything along those lines, then that can be an invitation for you to be stuck there for a very long period of time uh, trying to negotiate access because people are destitute and desperate and government public sector workers are not paid very much and so they'll exploit any opportunity that they can to try to generate some extra revenues and so you have to be very very patient because obviously when you're part of the humanitarian sector you will never pay any kind of incentive to be allowed access to enter so sometimes it's a game of chicken and you're hot and you're tired and you're exhausted and you're hungry and they know that and uh it it's it's a bit of a production it's not easy it's not easy um what is Juba then is the capital of South Sudan. It's in the kind of southern end of the country. You're heading north eventually on, on one of those UN flights, but you may have to uh, spend a day or two or, or more in Juba. Is Juba a civilized modern city? It's uh, it's not bad by the standards of a country that's been at war for thirty plus years. Um, so you know they are they have it, certainly if you stay at a locally run hotel they'll have running water. Uh, you can easily get meals. The security situation in Juba though can be touch and go, and uh, particularly in two thousand sixteen two thousand seventeen they've had some. Armed insurrections. There's an election taking place later this year, so I anticipate that the violence will uh, accelerate again, at least in in Juba. You just you just don't know. It just it's 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 a powder keg, and so at any point in time, someone can do something to one of the armed groups or within the political power sharing arrangement that they have. It can it can hit a uh, you know hit a, hit a point of disagreement, and then suddenly things are difficult. But when we had when we arrived, our local team made it very clear that because of the holidays having just concluded, because again this is January when we when we left, um, because the holidays had just concluded that they had reinforced the sort of security perimeter around Juba because they had been anticipating that there been that there would be some military activity. So we were um, very very glad that that we didn't see any of that. Correct me if I'm wrong, but there had been great hope that South Sudan was going to be the future for places like that in in Northeast Africa. But then things went wrong. What happened? It it was a series of things, but the the original um, leader John Garang, who emerged from the separation of Sudan and South Sudan and the the peace process, he died in a helicopter crash, and after that, that created a bit of a power vacuum. And there's been a lot of jockeying for position between the different tribal leaders ever since. And so it is a country where there are very strong alliances to different tribal and ethnic groups. And the power sharing has been and the, and the revenue sharing around that, particularly when you're talking about a country that has significant 
oil resources and oil revenues has been very, very uh, complicated. And then on top of that, you have standards of education and a public service that is not as strong in health, education, academia, as it, or even business development, economic development, as it should be. And so as a result of that, you have a number of different tensions that are playing out ethnic, tribal, economic, educational, gender-based that can uh, create this this ongoing insecurity and, and, and ongoing attacks between one group, one group and the other. Okay, so you're in Juba in southern South Sudan, and you're heading uh, to northern South Sudan um, uh, on, a, on a UN flight. Now, is are those who control movement within South Sudan okay with you being there or are they helpful to you being there do they understand why you're there what is the issue or is there an issue between you and the governing forces in south sudan no i think look you you need to consult with local government you need to make them aware of what you're doing we've been operational in south sudan and sudan and other parts of 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 africa certainly in in war-torn countries for more than 20 years and so we have strong relationships we have a fantastic local team 99.9 percent of our staff everywhere in the world are local our country director emmanuel in south sudan is southern sudanese and so that that helps in the sense that we follow their lead they manage a lot of these relationships they engage the government in conversation and they recognize that the work that we're producing is having an outcome a very positive outcome for communities so for example in some cases if i'm going into a community where we have been doing food security work with women teaching them how to farm teaching them how to preserve their food to provide for their children to to get income from those activities uh, sometimes we'll have a, a government representative who will come, who will even introduce the organization to the community, and and we'll talk to them about the work that we're doing. So, you, it's not the case there where you feel as if government is hostile to your intentions. They're very much welcoming those intentions. Where where the tensions come is that their priorities may not be your priorities. They may not even be the population's priorities because they may have. Um, strategic reasons and votes they're trying to earn and this kind of thing for telling you where you should go and what you should do. And that's where you end up in uh, places of tension that require a lot of, of patience and a lot of diplomacy. So up to this point, when you're, you get on the plane to head north, you, you still feel safe. You're safe at that point, you're not under some threat. I mean, Peter, I'm the wrong one to ask. <laughs> Safety is a relative term. I mean, compared to, compared to uh, Yemen, yeah, I felt really safe because in South Sudan, they're not kidnapping aid workers or in Iraq or in Afghanistan. Um, and and being a, a woman in those environments, running an organization in South Sudan is, is a lot easier than it is in 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 Afghanistan, for example, um, I can meet with officials and have conversations, and there isn't this overlying uh, tension that, that that exists. So, so I, yeah, I feel I feel as safe as possible under the circumstances. Okay, so you're on the UN flight. You're flying into uh, the north of the country, uh, where your concerns are. Um, 
helping those who were who were living there. What is the what's the situation as you get off off the plane? You, it's not like you're landing at Pearson. You're landing on probably some um, airstrip in the middle of nowhere. You are, and it and it depends. So I was in two different locations along the Sudanese border for this particular trip, and one of those locations called Wow W A U. Uh, if your listeners do have their map out, that is relatively safe and secure. There have been some armed incursions in different locations. There's a strong UN peacekeeping presence. And so in that situation, going out to visit our, our programs, in especially because they're in agriculture in that location, they're in very remote spots, an hour to an hour and a half, sometimes two hours on really hard, bumpy, challenging roads. Uh, I certainly felt there as if it was we had there was significant progress compared to what I had seen previously. Things have been relatively stable. People are farming. There we're seeing the effects of climate change and that kind of thing, but we're not seeing a lot of armed violence and destruction. Having said that, when I was on the opposite side in in Malakal, again uh, close to the Sudanese border. Uh, the last time I had been there, that was a functioning city for 50,000 plus people with a thriving industry and uh, people had jobs and there were markets and, and this kind of thing. And um, landing there, it was unrecognizable to me. There is there is nothing left of that town. They have gone through a significant uh, amount of upheaval over the last five, six years, they had some armed, uh, really intense fighting in the camps for internally displaced people there. About eight months ago, they've received more than 100,000 returnees from Sudan and refugees from Sudan as a result of that war. So you've got a mass migration of people living in the most abhorrent conditions that you can imagine. You have an underfunded humanitarian drastically underfunded humanitarian response you've got a town that's been completely flattened and um it is it is dystopian and uh heartbreaking on a level that i think is inconceivable for most certainly canadians to even imagine were you i mean obviously you'd been briefed you had some sense of what you were getting into but you sound like even you were surprised by what you saw. I I was surprised by what I saw. I I knew that there had been fighting in in Malakal from the time that I had been there previously, but I didn't expect it to just be rubble and uh, squalor and open sewers everywhere and and a level of destitution that I have not seen in, in many parts of the world, partly because under normal circumstances, when you have this mass migration of refugees and returnees because of the war, for example, in Sudan, and South Sudan has accepted about half a million refugees and returnees from Sudan in, uh, in the last just in the last nine months, which is a massive number of people. And so normally what you see are makeshift shelters and you see tents, UNHCR tents, and you see plastic sheeting and corrugated metal siding, and people have started to erect temporary structures 
Um, but in this case, because, again, the humanitarian response has been so constrained, largely as a result of a lack of attention, conflict in Ukraine and Gaza sucking up a lot of those resources. Keep in mind that South Sudan and Sudan, the humanitarian response, the global humanitarian response for both of these crises is less than half of, of what is required of the global humanitarian appeals. And so everything is in short supply. And so you don't see those food distributions. You don't see those those tents being set up. You see a lot of people just living out in the open, intense on plastic sheets, um, being moved around the country all over the place to try to accommodate them in, in different locations. And they are arriving incredibly desperate, starving. Uh, if for women and girls having experienced mass atrocities, horrific sexual violence, and there's there are very few services available to them. And that is among the worst I, I've seen in almost 30 years. I mean, it, it, it is on a level I haven't witnessed since Somalia. It was, it was heartbreaking. Who's in, who's in control? I mean, is the government of South Sudan in control? Is it the UN who's trying to control things? I mean, you talked about UN protecting aid groups. Who's in control? This is always the question in any war zone. Is anyone really in control? If anyone was in control, would it still be at war, right? Um, if the peacekeeping forces were able to really enforce peace, you you wouldn't have a situation like this. So in a place like Malakal, it is a negotiation all the time between the humanitarian actors like the United Nations and UNIMIS, which is the United Nations mission in South Sudan, the peacekeeping mission and then local government as well. And sometimes those priorities are, they don't, they don't align. So for example, the government may not want those returnees who had fled South Sudan to go to Sudan previously and now are coming back. And some of them are from different tribal groups. They may have had different military political uh, affiliations, which is why they fled in the first instance. And now they're coming across, and then you have Sudanese who are coming across into one of the poorest countries in the world. Four-fifths of the population of South Sudan lives in extreme poverty. So the government is trying to deal with these arrivals who are extremely vulnerable, who may also represent a threat to peace and stability for, for for their own country, and trying to figure out where to put them and how to contain them. And yet these are groups that also have tension between themselves. And so some of those groups don't want to be put together because they feel that it makes them, they're locked in then and at risk of, from one another. And so then the UN is trying to figure out, it's like a it's like a massive jigsaw puzzle, right? Or chessboard where you're trying to figure out who's going to go where and where it's safe and where you can provide services and and what makes sense. And, uh, and sometimes that doesn't work, which is why... Um, last summer, there was a, a, a major uprising in one of the camps, and a number of people were slaughtered, and several thousand of them fled to a different location, and now the government's trying to relocate them. And to do that, they're cutting off services, so people are becoming more destitute and more desperate. It's, um, it's very complicated. There are many layers to it. So you're there now. You're with your team, and you're trying to help. So what do you do? Hmm. Well, 
in places where it's stable and we have a presence that's very straightforward. So this is a country that is at tremendously high risk of famine. And the answer there is not short-term food distribution programs that will work again in the short term. But when you have an underfunded humanitarian response and when the World Food Program's uh, budget has been slashed and so they're not able to provide ongoing regular sources of food, you have to look at other means. And so that's why we have been doing work in the area of food security, actually funded by Global Affairs Canada called the Feed Program, which we do in conjunction with CARE and World Vision here in Canada, and um, a terrific program. So we're providing seeds and tools and training around farming, and they're harvesting their own food, and that's providing revenue and stability for families and allowing those communities to recover. At the same time, we're doing catch-up learning for kids who've been out of school, and they're able to get back into school and to envision a different future for themselves other than amongst those armed groups. So in those environments, that's been very successful. In places like Malakal, you, you, where we have also been operating, um, again, we're within the camps. We're looking at child protection work, women and girls, uh, education pieces. What becomes challenging is what to do with the new arrivals because um, it's, it's an ongoing tension. You've got a government that wants to send them to specific locations that they don't want to go to. So they don't, and the government, because they don't want them to remain, they don't want international humanitarian organizations directly providing services to them because then they will not move. They will not stay. They'll, they'll, they'll stay to, to, to continue with those services. Um, and so then this is a, a, a negotiation. So you've got these different clusters of humanitarian organizations grouped around themes, education, nutrition, uh, child protection. And as a group, we try to negotiate with the government to be able to provide services to those who are most at need um, or most in need rather. But it's it's difficult because the things that you know need to be done and that you want to do, you can't just go ahead and do them because then you risk being kicked out of the country. You risk being offside of the entire humanitarian effort there because you're providing services to a group that you're told needs to move, um, even though those same recipients are sitting there digging in their heels saying there's absolutely no way we're moving because if we move, we'll be killed. So this is the kind of delicate situation that we confront. And I guess the short answer to your question is we do as much as possible under the circumstances, recognizing that there can be unintended consequences and you have to be able to look ahead and understand what the impact of those efforts will be and make sure that you negotiate both with the broader humanitarian community and the government, as well as those uh, people who are in incredible need to find the best path forward. And, and sometimes it's uh, incredibly frustrating. I want to take a, uh, a short break. I've got a couple more questions on this. Um, and I really appreciate you talking to us about it and, and, and trying to place us there because that's the hardest thing about stories like this is uh, for those of us who live a comfortable lives in a, on the same planet but in a different space. Uh, it's awfully hard to understand that. Um, be back uh, right after this.
and welcome back. You're listening to the Tuesday episode of The Bridge. Dr. Samantha Nett from uh, Warchild Canada is with us talking about her recent trip just back a couple of days ago from uh, South Sudan. Um, you know, as you said, it's a war zone uh, that you're in. And I'm, did you ever, you know, obviously, I, I mean, I've seen some of the pictures uh, you took and the video you took, and it, it certainly looks like a war zone and the and the aftermath of, uh, you know, a terrible uh, displacement of people and buildings and et cetera, et cetera. Um, did you ever get caught in what you thought was a war zone on this on trip? On this trip? Yeah. Uh, it feels, I, you're you're in it. I mean, you're you're when you're in Malakal, you're in it. I was staying at the United Nations peacekeeping mission, so I'm surrounded by 250 soldiers. <laughs> I'm I was one of maybe maybe maximum three women that I saw in the entire camp, um, and uh, I was 60 feet from where the UN helicopters are all taking off and the troops are doing all of their drills and you stay in a tiny shipping container. Um, so you, 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 you really feel it. You you really do feel it. It's uh, it's a place where things can turn on a dime. And, and I've been in those kinds of UN mission spots before um, multiple times actually, but uh, yeah, you, you, there's no question when you're in that situation that you're, that you're actively in, in a war zone. And then of course, every day you hear from people and you hear their stories and, um, then, then you're reminded of just how, um, terrifying and horrific war is and how it's just destroying so many millions of lives throughout the world. And people never fully recover from that. They just put time and space between what they've endured and where they are now. Can you share um, one of those stories that you heard from this most recent trip? Yeah, I think, uh, well, there were a couple, actually. The hardest part, the hardest moment for me, certainly, was going into, um, we've been active in the Darfur region for 20 years now of Sudan. And last summer, our staff were, in hiding, they were from, uh, some of them were from the ethnic minority that was being targeted during that conflict, which is still ongoing. Many of them have had to flee. Uh, some have fled into South Sudan, the Central African Republic, up into Egypt. Um, and it was a very, very tense and difficult time. We've been in West Darfur, Al Janina, like as I said, for, for a very long time, doing youth programming and education. So there I am, just not even, actually a week ago tomorrow, and um, and I go, I'm trying to go to the location of the Darfurian refugees who have arrived. And there are several hundred of them. And so we're directed towards this bombed out, almost completely destroyed mosque in the center of Malakal. And they're camped out um, in the in the gardens, in the mosque itself. It's it's dark. The conditions are horrific. They're, um, they're really struggling. They don't even have any kind of, uh, tents or, or, or anything at all. And so we're met by these several hundred Darfurian refugees. And this one, after some introductions and, and explanations, this 
this one young woman stands up and she says, uh, and she starts explaining how she had just written her final medical school exams. And she's from El Janina in Darfur. And she doesn't even know what the results were because she had to flee. And so she was never able to receive them. And all of those records have now disappeared. And as a doctor myself, I can just imagine all that time and effort and energy. And you write your final exams and then you're left with no proof that you did any of it. And she stands there and she's, you know, it's clear that she has a very high level of education to have gone that far. And, uh, and then she says that she remembers Warto Canada and she remembers our team in Algenina because she'd been part of our youth leadership program. And she was so happy and so grateful for that. And then she said that she had arrived with absolutely nothing. She had to leave her family behind because she couldn't even get home to flee with them. She was with another young woman whose baby she had delivered at the side of the road who fled with her, who was pregnant. And they had been through horrific things, absolutely horrific things. And at the end of the conversation she was having, she turned and I mean, it was, it was hard. She turned and she said, um, we've been waiting for you. We knew you would come. (laughs) And, uh, it was, and, and I was with my all African team and, and they just started crying i mean because they're ref- they were refugees at one point as well and and all of the, the refugees when she said that and they translated she they stood up and they started applauding and her story is is incredible and what makes it so heartbreaking as well is that in my head i hear this from her and i know that they're starving i know that they haven't eaten in in weeks And I also know that that is a deliberate policy because they don't want those Darfurian refugees to stay there. They want to relocate them to Maban, which is the recognized refugee camp, which many of them had come from, but they had fled because they were part of the same Darfurian minority group that was being slaughtered in in Janaina. So this is a group of people who are being told we're not going to provide you with services because you're not allowed to stay here. And they're saying to us, we're not going to that camp because we'll be raped and we'll be killed. And we, we know this, we've experienced this. And then they're looking at you to say, we waited for you to come. And the, the, the weight of that and the expectations around that are, um, are the things that keep me up at night. They're, it's enormous. It's it's enormous, and there are no easy answers. We we did some short-term stuff while we were there to provide them with support and to make sure that they had at least enough food for the foreseeable future, and, and we're trying to negotiate with some of the other um, organizations on the ground and to get them relocated to perhaps different, different refugee camps where they would be safe. But there's no long-term solution there other than... Um, hopefully the peace process in Sudan will eventually be effective and they'll be able to go home. But most of them have no homes to return to and they don't even know if their loved ones are alive. So mm. it's, it's, it's hard. Oh, it's hard. I bet. Not only is it hard, but it must be awfully hard or difficult to square it in your mind. You know, like we've known each other for 
quite a few years and you you know where i usually where i see you it's in it's in you know southern ontario or somewhere in canada and we live a good life and we're very lucky and you know we have all the the benefits of uh, of being canadian and living in canada and then suddenly within literally and i guess that's why i wanted to hear the story about how you got there because it's literally within a matter of hours you're you're in another you're in a very different place a very dark place uh, on the other side of the world but it's still the same world and mm. somehow you've got a squirrelless in your mind and I'm not sure how you do that I think that it comes from experience for sure um, uh, but I also think that what drives you in the end is is seeing progress so in the same way that that Malakal was challenging and devastating and difficult and these solutions seem to be elusive not that far away where we've had other programming going on for a while and some of those Darfurian refugees would like to go to wow and so that's the kind of thing that we can help expedite and sort of and try and try to figure out um we've had longer term programming where people are turning their lives around and their kids are able to go to school and they're thinking very differently about the future. They're not holding on to the scars of the past and getting people to that place. I mean, that's really what War Child does, right? It's, it's, it's that, it's that bridge between dependence and independence between hopelessness and hopefulness. And so um, by investing in that and seeing that progress, that's what makes it all worthwhile. And that's when it's that's the stuff that I try to to hold on to. You know, one of the one of the other things that one another young woman said from Darfur when I was talking to them in that mosque, she turned around and she said, "Those who wage war come to kill us, and those who are indifferent to our suffering want to destroy us." And 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 that's what it is, right? It's it's if we can, whatever little bit we can do to restore people's sense of, of dignity and, and the space to recover and to rebuild. That's when you transition from this place of chronic conflict to something that actually um, will lead us all to more peaceful societies. It's just, unfortunately, we invest too heavily in the arms and war side of that equation and we invest by comparison so little, less than one twelfth of military global military spending is is uh, spent on humanitarian aid. I mean, by comparison, you know, humanitarian aid is is one twelfth of, of global military spending. Um, getting that balance right would actually promote a more peaceful world. It's just it's a longer term strategy, and we we tend to think in very short term ways around these challenges. What's the right balance? <laughs> is it one? Is it one for one? I I, I got to be honest. I, when you said one twelfth, I was surprised. That it's that high. Yeah. Well, you know, these days with with everything that's been going on in in Ukraine and Gaza, it might uh, it might be far, far less than that, especially with a lot of the cutbacks that are taking place. Look, uh, it doesn't cost a lot. It doesn't cost a lot to educate a child. It doesn't cost a lot to provide clean water and access to food. These kinds of things are pennies, dollars, compared to what we spend on uh, our vast armaments throughout the world, our weapons of mass destruction. And 
you know, you can certainly argue around the need for um, a, a fulsome defense budget in order to promote uh, global peace and security. And I don't want to get into all of that stuff right now. But what I would say is that we look at aid as something that is wasteful. It's usually the one thing people think that they can just dispense with if they're trying to cut budgets. It always seems to be like, why would we send our money to other parts of the world? And what good does it do? And we have enough problems here at home. And that's the kind of stuff that we hear all the time, the stuff that I've heard for 30 years. But the reality is that when you're facing a global refugee and displacement crisis, 110 plus million people, the worst since World War II, when you see all of these crises popping up all over the place, and you need to recognize the interconnected nature of these outcomes. And so by investing in the humanitarian piece, it actually invests in all of our peace and security. And so, um, as much as humanitarian aid, we like to position it as something that is altruistic, it's also in our best interest. And so we need to shift some of the thinking around that. And if we did shift that thinking, um, then however much money we spend, we wouldn't see it as being wasted or unnecessary or or not not something that is relevant to us. We would see it as completely the opposite. Okay. Um, we're almost out of time. You did mention earlier... Um Yemen, because that's often on your mind, having been there yourself and dealt with some difficult situations there. If our listeners are still looking at a map, it's all in the same orbit here. I mean, Yemen is not that far from South Sudan, sort of across Ethiopia, across the Red Sea, across the Gulf of Aden. It's right there. And it's uh, in the news in a way it hasn't been before as a result of the Houthi attacks on, on shipping and uh, their involvement, involvement really, uh, as part of the whole Israel-Hamas thing. Um, have, you, have you given Yemen much thought uh, as a result of everything, your own background there and uh, what you're witnessing now? And if you do, give us your thoughts before we close this out for today. Yeah, well, I, you and I have talked about Yemen a lot over the last year because I've been there three times, including twice to the Houthi control areas just in the last uh, 11 months. Uh, and I was there two months ago. I was in the southern part of the country. So uh, it's it's always on my mind. We have programming in Yemen. And look, the reality is it's an extremely vulnerable country. The Houthis are seeing... Um, for, for them, the, the incentive around participating in Gaza is that they are effectively a proxy for Iran and are supported by Iran, both militarily and, and financially. And so for them to to do Iran's bidding in the Red Sea, which keep keep in mind with the Red Sea as well, they, that that. 12% of global trade and about 30% of all shipping global container traffic, 30% uh, of global container traffic goes through the Red Sea there. So, so even though we don't think about Yemen, when the Houthis decide to flex militarily like this, the impact on the world and the world economy is pretty significant. So, so this is really about them trying to curry favor with Iran. They've had their own political instabilities. They've been at war for almost a decade. About 377,000 people have died in that conflict. They're out of money. They, the Houthis can't even pay their public sector workers. They're not paying their teachers or their or their uh, or their police, and they've had trouble even paying their own military. So this 
appeals to them for domestic reasons. It gives them a level of, of credibility within the region. It gives them a level of, of power. Uh, the extent to which they represent a meaningful threat to world militaries like the United States or the United Kingdom, not really. But what it does represent in terms of drawing all of these other actors into a broader regional conflict, and we saw some of that today as well with with uh, Iran-affiliated attacks on uh, U.S. soldiers in Jordan, of all places, right? Um, previously, we'd seen that in Iraq and we'd seen it in Syria, but in but in Jordan, which is a strong U.S. ally, this is this is where just by creating friction, uncertainty, disruption, blocking. Uh, the movement of goods and this kind of stuff frustrating particularly the united states and other western powers that's where iran sees it has an advantage without engaging directly with um with for example the united states because that would be a point of 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 no return um so when i think about yemen this is what i think of i think of a population that is starving that is broke that is in desperate need of humanitarian assistance and now on top of it, they are pawns in this broader geopolitical game between uh, various powers to try to achieve an advantage that is uh, unclear at this moment. Dr. Samantha Nutt, War Channel Canada. Sam, thanks very much. We're all glad you're uh, home. We know that uh, you'll be going back because that's what you care about. And, uh, you know, obviously uh, you care about things here as well, but... We know that that's your your mission in life, uh, working on these kind of things, and uh, we're proud uh, to know you. So take care. Thank you, and thanks for having me again. I'm sorry I'm always depressing. <laughs> 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 I don't mean to be, but it just always works out that way. <laughs> well, that, that laugh makes us feel better. Take care. Thanks. Take care. Dr. Samantha Nutt from War Child Canada. Uh, with an inside look of what it's like to go on one of these journeys uh, to help, to aid. Now, Dr. Nutt mentioned a number of other uh, Canadian-based aid groups that are involved in in work in uh, Sudan and South Sudan. If you feel so, um, you know, they all take donations. They all need your help. Um, And if you want to... uh, Go to Sam's organization, it's warchild.ca, and you can find out everything you need to know there. Uh, All right, a quick reminder, tomorrow um, is Wednesday, it's an Encore Day, and we're going to look at the uh, Canadian secrets by going back into um, the uh, podcast library to a program we did almost a year ago uh, that talks about how we gather secrets, Canada that is, what we do with them, and how protected they are. So that's all coming up tomorrow on a um, Encore edition. Thursday is your turn, and the question of the week, you want to get your uh, your uh, potential answer in here, or your answer to the question of the week, which is, if there's one thing you could tell a new immigrant to Canada about Canada, what would that be? Keep it short. Include your name and location. Get it in before 6 p.m. tomorrow, Eastern Time. All right, that's it for uh, this day. Once again, thanks to uh, Dr. Samantha Nutt and all the good people at War Child Canada. 
I'm Peter Mansbridge. Thanks so much for listening. Talk to you again in the encore version in 24 hours. Thank you.